the end result is that uh, you know we have a system that will end up being run by corporations, and corporations will seek legitimacy by um, becoming the guarantors of social good, and social you know, stability. Um, and they'll do that by saying, "Okay, here's the political system. It's all moderated. It's all you know running smoothly. You don't get any extreme people. Uh, here's the social space or the, the public forum." Uh, Big ideas that are or dissent that's dangerous will be screened out. Those people silenced, um, and that we're solving the problems because the state, you know, the nation states can't. Uh, they'll start to take on global climate change, for instance, and they'll say, "Okay." I mean, the way to do that is that we'll start to nudge people in different directions. Hello, everyone. Just a little update from September fifteenth. I'm going to be teaching a class with my good friend Andrew Sweeney at the Manifesto Media Academy, a new online learning platform that we're experimenting with for men. A class on the internet, digital, the paradigm shift. If you're interested, check out the links below. Uh, so welcome, John. Um, John, we wanted to start off by asking you uh, about something that we're very interested in in uh, in this podcast. Um, so we're very keen on this idea that we can have a say on designing our own environments and by doing so, designing also our informational environments, having right. an attitude of curation towards them, and therefore even aspire to design senses of truth, of morality, uh, of our own perception. And as, as you know, which is sort of your expertise and it's kind of becoming more and more clear at, at a mainstream level, truth production is today also sort of a military act, especially in the context of irregular warfare. Um, I wonder if we could start by getting some of your comments on, on this idea, right? That truth production is a military act or rather that we can do, there are interventions being made to skew truth and truths. Um, uh, you know, the military and um, nations have had, you know, uh, been engaged in psychological warfare for years, forever. It goes all the way back to the early stages of warfare. Um, we saw it, you know, developed during the Cold War. Um, it was primarily, you know, where the, the Cold War was fought is, is in the information space. Um, and um, now we're into a world where nation states are declining in importance and um, we're starting to see a struggle between people and different ideas online and um, that war is primarily in the information space it's being you know conducted on a daily basis i, I go back to marshall McLuhan's um reference point back in i think 1968 uh when he said that um, he didn't know what weapons we'd be using in, in, in World War III, but it would be primarily a guerrilla information war where everyone is a participant, where there's no dividing line between the military and the civilian. And that's exactly what we're seeing now. Um, everybody is engaged. Everybody is trying to wrestle uh, with each other over, you know, to try to come out on top in terms of determining truth, determining uh, how society is organized. Um, and uh, that's a messy place. And most people don't understand that they're actually already been drafted. They're involved, they're, they're engaged. 
yes. whether they want to or not, um, you, you know, you're part of it. Um, and we're all in this big information space together. And we're, um, you know, whoever ends up running the show, getting, you know, their hands on the levers is the one that's going to uh, determine what, you know, we, uh, mm -hmm. how well we live and, and where we go. That makes sense. It's a, kind Absolutely. of a, trying Absolutely. to squeeze it down into this kind of. That was a brilliant now. <laughs> summary. Uh, just maybe as a quick follow-up, you know, as civilian soldiers, having been drafted witting or unwittingly to this warfare in the newosphere, or rather in this realm of ideas, um, it could also be said that the conflict that we're engaged in right now, a conflict for the very space of our own brains, for our consciousness, for our belief systems, um, that that conflict, like you said, maybe is even being managed or stoked or, in, or, or that there is a there are strategic hands, strategic players, uh, in many ways kind of staging many theaters of this war. Uh, I'm, I'm reminded about obviously Vladislav Surkov and his, his approach to this as a theater or his boasting on this level. Um, do you see this as a chaotic battlefield where everyone is battling against everyone and we're battling for different factions at the same time? Or could you, or do you reckon that there are maybe a couple of big factions actually as the big players in this conflict? Well, there's a difference between what's going on in the US versus what's going on globally. Um, and there's really not any clearly de delineated lines are, you know, uh, it's, hard, it's hard to explain this. A lot of people are actually going out and engaging in conflict, but they don't really know what they're fighting for, right? They're just engaging and they think they have an idea as to what, what they're fighting for. Um, I don't see anyone masterminding this. I mean, I've been involved in a lot of the you know, tough discussions in government and like, and I haven't really seen anyone that smart. <laughs> There's really, I mean, they're smart and, and smart like you and I and, and, and uh, everyone else we meet out in the real world, but they're not, uh, up to the level of actually trying to mastermind this entire conflict. Um, there is loss as we are in, in, in fact, often because of the way the bureaucracy works are even more limited than we are, um, you know, mm. living outside of the bureaucracy and, and being able to do what we want. Um, if anything, I mean, maybe the people at the corporations have more of a control over this longer term. Right. Uh, so, you know, in a, in a couple of reports, I tried to you know kind of look at what we're actually fighting over and trying to get the you know 40, 50, 60 year time horizon. Um, kind of like you know, uh, you know, after the printing press hit, which is the kind of the technological shock that's equivalent to what we're experiencing right now, it's slammed into the universal church, it's slammed into feudalism, you know, a world where uh, nobody could own land unless you had the right. DNA, uh, and you were connected to the right people. Um, it was very structured, very uh, uh, stationary. And then, and here comes the printing press, and there's millions of pamphlets all over Europe, uh, and and things were changing and things were moving. But you know, lots of different experiments going on in that kind of fractured political landscape in Europe at the time, and um, no one knew where it was going. But I mean, where it was going is towards this kind of constitutional democracy. 
uh, maybe even the big ideologies we saw in the 20th century, uh, the uh, the market system that we see now, or the big financial system with the ledgers and everything else that all required a printing to actually make, make possible. Um, the idea of a constitution, you actually read it. So all of, even science, structured science, where you actually write papers and you share that and you build you know, from the ground up based on the scientific method, uh, uh, an edifice of, of, you know, of what you think is true, uh, you know, wasn't possible, really truly possible until the printing press hit. And so um, trying to, you know, figure out where it was headed if you're on the ground and, and you know, right after uh, that, it, it started moving and started, you know, uh, you know uh, conflict started to arise. It's kind of hard. I mean, you you know most likely would join the wrong side because you don't really don't know where it's going to go. And and even if the early efforts that were going to end up winning in the long term would even would even win in that in that time frame, <laughs> right? Sometimes it takes you have to go do everything wrong first before you find the right solution. Mm -hmm. So uh, where are we going now? Well, um, again, you know McLuhan is actually really good at this. Most of his other stuff, uh, hot cold stuff, is all kind of useless. But the stuff that really matters is the the earlier things when he took a uh, Ennis's work and, and you know looked at you know how the electronic medium is changing us uh, even before the internet uh, he said something really cool it was that in order to survive this survive you know the kind of retribalization and everything else associated with uh, you know bringing on social networking is that we would have to build a societal artifact and basically a machine, a network machine that would sit and be, you know, and manage this for us, manage our interactions, kind of smooth them out. Um, and the way I envision it, and I think that's probably true, is that we're in the process of building the societal artifact, a societal scale artifact uh, that will manage our social interactions and not like manage it like a machine, but uh, be you know much more complex and, and hopefully much more under our control. And the funny thing is, is that, you know, AI, and most people think of AI going towards, uh, you know, AGI, you know, artificial general intelligence and, and smart smarts that are similar to the way we think and trying to exceed that. The AI that we're actually investing in, the AI that's actually moving forward, the technology that's moving forward that encompasses that is, is actually moving towards social space, social networking. It's where the billions are being spent. It's the AIs that... The biggest AIs in the world, they have the most data. The amount of data correlates very strongly with the, the, the quality of the AI. And there are uh, the AIs that we interact with on the most, you know, day, almost a daily basis, you know, three and a half, four billion of us interact with these AIs. Um, AI is actually not an independent intelligence. It's actually the intelligences, intelligence that sits in the space between us. It lives off our data. It's a symbiotic. Uh, it's a symbiont. And then hopefully that will be, uh, you know, one of the good versions of, of symbiosis, right? <laughs> not like a, not like a, uh, uh, something that will leech off us, but that would actually enhance us and make us better. Um, and that uh, we can construct that. Uh, you know, there's a different ways to actually think about this, uh, you know, whether it's going to run simulation for us, whether it's going to, you know, manage all our interactions and, and kind of tweak them, make it possible for us to live together and be more productive, more um, cooperative. 
when it when it when it's uh, important and more able to uh, express dissent in a positive way. Mm-hmm. So that's a big idea. And so we're we're seeing the fight is over who controls the initial conditions, who controls the settings for that artifact, and that's a huge fight. That's that's all the marbles because that's global scale. Maybe everybody except for China for. And they're going down the wrong path, obviously, mm-hmm. right now. But China and the rest of us. Are... Yes. And you sketched like a couple of scenarios, I know, in your work. Like you talk about like the China scenario, which is a central bureaucracy running all of the AIs in, in that precisely that social credit style model. Then there's the Russia style model that you've talked about, which is more a sense of a small power elite being involved in keeping everybody in so much chaos and discord and disorder that no meaningful agency in opposition will be able to to form. And then there's potentially whatever, whatever potentiality exists outside of these two poles where there is something like meaningful political agency for more than just a very select minority who happen to be sitting on top of the the AI the AI pyramids, I guess. And so something that like I'm wondering about at the moment is what does political agency look like in that possible future? Like where instead of say, political parties functioning as, um, well, mechanisms whereby human values can be funneled into a bureaucracy that then makes decisions, how values might be, I guess, intersubjectively funneled into decision-making, uh, decision-making structures in a right. more decentralized way. Right. So, um, what we see is that there's there's different social decision-making systems out there, right? Um, there's the, the market-based system. There's the bureaucratic hierarchical system. Um, there's the tribal system. And each has their own uses. I mean, we use the, the market to allocate uh, resources. We discover information. Uh, we use the bureaucracy to mobilize resources and, and get big projects done um, to provide structure. And then we have the tribal, which co- provides a cohesion factor. And each of these structures have, have, have problems. I mean, they if they're left alone, they can actually do incredible damage. Um, a society is dominated by a market or is, is a couple of people at the top with everything and everyone else is, is impoverished. That's happened plenty of times and mostly in ancient history and forward. Um, terrible, terrible states, impossible places to live. Uh, bureaucracies, as we saw in the 20th century, uh, they have no moral compass. They can go boom into, you know, they can automate and accelerate horrible stuff. They mobilize resources to kill millions. Uh, and then you have the uh, the tribal system, the, the kind of nationalism uh, that can be mobilized again in, in the wrong way. Uh, you can get that selective empathy going. You can, you can use it incorrectly. Now we, in, up till now, we've found ways to use each of these social decision-making systems to compensate for the other's weakness. We use market-based decision-making to elect people to run the government bureaucracy and uh, to set, which then sets the rules 
for the you know market system, which then encompasses you know, within that market system we have corporate bureaucracies interacting, right? Um, and then we kind of tie it all together up till now in these nation states. They kind of provided a cohesion and, and, a, and, a, and a protective kind of wrapper around it. Um, you know, that cohesion is important because uh, that kind of tribal cohesion means that um, you and I can trust what the other, you know, I can trust what you're saying. When you have some information that you discover, when you share, I have a basic level of trust. I don't might not agree with it, but I trust you at a, at a basic level, um, unless you're going to, you know, radically destroy your reputation. But on the whole, people just trust each other and are willing to work together. Uh, you know, that kind of basic cohesion makes it possible for coherence and coherent thought as a group to get things done. We're seeing right now kind of a breakdown in that coherence as we you know break into different tribes nobody trusts what the other person other tribe is saying and, and nobody will, will can work together because we you know, don't agree on the basic information <laughs> right i mean or they think that the information that they're presenting is just meant to hurt them and that makes a, a an incoherent system uh, so um anyway so we've used these systems all together and now we have this new one, networks. And this is a, you know, John Arquila's kind of frame. He called it Timon. Um, but when he was writing about it, he didn't really have a real grasp of the, of the network piece. He was trying to, you know, but early days, and now we're starting to see it in, in more uh, clarity. Um, that network piece, uh, how does it fit into the existing social networking system? Or so, uh, social decision-making system. How does it complement them? I mean, it doesn't replace them all. It's not a clean sweep. You don't do everything all in, in the network decision-making space. What you're going to see is it will find ways to integrate in. And um, because networking really allows you to do some amazing stuff. It allows you to, to uh, generate uh, dissent on, on just about anything. You can have, you know, it's amazingly quick uh, information discovery. I can find the outlier items and allow it to you know, gain credibility as it presents information, presents evidence. Um, it can allow you to mobilize very, very quickly, far more quickly than, than we've seen in the other systems. Um, it can provide its own sort of cohesion that's similar to what we see in, in, in tribalism. Uh, but how does that system work? And that's the nub of your question: How does it integrate in? And um, we're just we're just seeing it, and we're working through the problems associated with that. Um, you know, things like uh, it's going to require like reworry thinking. You know, basic stuff about like the economy. You know, how do you build a, an economy that works more like a you know network um, than the system we have now, where uh, you are. forced to kind of work with that economy because of geography and but you don't have any true stake in it if it does well and it does better over time uh, you don't there's no you know all boats rise or it's if, it, if there is it's very very uh you know a couple uh, uh orders removed in terms of its effect on you a network system something maybe out of crypto and the crypto kind of experience you know gives us give us an insight into this is that um, 
if you participate in an economy where you throw all your transactions and everything you do, and that's kind of the base plane, as you do that, as you do transactions on that system, as you do work, as you do things that actually make it improve in value, um, if you own an equity stake in that and a positive equity, not the kind of like equity, every all outcomes are the same, which is not the, not the real value of equity. Equity is owning a stake in the system is that as that goes up, you go up. So if we had the U.S. economy went up fourfold since 20 years ago, no one felt that. You know, everyone felt it feels like you know it, it's in this separate system. They don't have a stake in it. And, and the result of that is that you have people, you know, oh, why should I vax? Why should I do this or that? I mean, I'm not a part of this. This isn't, you know, uh, something that's benefiting me really. Um, and, uh, uh, you know, I'm not part of this whole, I don't have that, I don't have any stake in that. So we can, you know, see how it, we, there's ways of integrating in this kind of networking in a positive way that gets people moving in the right direction and uh, utilizing all the elements that we currently have in a positive way. Mm-hmm. Sure. Like, it reminds me, like, where I have a lot of interest and kind of work at the moment as well is at these layer of maybe trying to figure out how to do networked tribes well, as opposed to them being in-group, out-group, low relationship um, kind of entities that just form around like who the enemy is. So it's the racists or it's the woke people. And we all kind of tweet each other. And there's this kind of ability to say, you're part of my tribe, you're part of my tribe. But there's not really physical relationality. There's not really economies and exchange between these people. Whereas like I'm working here in Europe, in the European men's movement, and we've got a bunch of basically guys who are like, well, (laughs) we're a bit confused and fed up with what's going on. Like, let's at least get together and try to explore on a very low local, but digital local level, what it means to be men and what it means to be doing business and what it means to be going out into (laughs) into intersexual relationships in this, in this environment. And also what it means to kind of be building kind of, institutions from the ground up again right and i guess one of the projects that i'm curious like if you have any insight into this from your time work about being in the military or seeing these kind of networks emerge in uh, in other areas of the world in conflict zones is like what are practices that work well and what are practices to avoid in terms of like trying to cook pull together new social units. Right. Well, I mean, it's hard right now because um, kind of at the national level, we have these sprawling open source tribal structures on the left. See, it's kind of anti-everything, anti-racism, anti-colonialism, anti-sexism, anti-whatever. And that is structured there. And then there's kind of anti-woke, anti uh, anti-anti-Americans, and things like that. It's like on the, on the right. Um, or, you know, against whatever they said. And um, those structures uh, are formed around this idea that uh, I can't define what I'm for, I can only define what I'm against. So we're in this kind of world where um, we don't have any common 
ground for developing a view of the world. We don't know for what's right and wrong for how we to solve things. Uh, everyone is, you know, riffing to a certain extent. Uh, there's no you know, common moral structure that you have to say, okay, you are all part of that. Um, everyone it has their own. And so you can see it, like, for instance, uh, when if you'd ask, like, somebody on the left, you know, what is justice? I mean, spell out exactly what the world would look like. Justice. You, they couldn't do it. I mean, if, if you tried, somebody tried to do that, everybody else in the room who had up to that moment supported them would be against them. And everyone has their own view. Everyone has their own riff. Um, what you can agree on and what's easier to agree on is you know who the target is, who the enemy is. Uh, and um, defining them and then building up a set of descriptors and you know a, a pattern of, of conduct and behavior that you're, you're against. Now that dominates the landscape right now. That's, um, you know, both sides are trying to, uh, you know, gain the dominant position so they can actually influence the social networking companies and the tech companies and, and get them to institute and build into the infrastructure their view of the world. Um, and as, you know, one is looking for a very lockdown ver version of the world and the other one is looking for a very kind of open, anything goes version with few restrictions. One thing about the American right that uh, a lot of people get wrong is that it's, it's different than the European right. You ever hear Tom Wolfe say, uh, specter of fascism is always falling over the United States and lands on Europe. Well, in the US, in the US, it's um, the right is always more against any centralized structures, against any kind of centralized control. The idea of sovereign citizens and, and people who are, you know, aren't beholden to, to, to the government is kind of, it's not, it's not what you see in the rest of the world in terms of what they, people normally think in terms of the hard right. Uh, viewpoints. Um, that's more centralized, more culturally focused, more cohesive. This is who we are. Um, and so, uh, so the U.S. version of the right in, in the online space is like minimal controls. Let anyone do what they want. Let everyone uh, dissent. Uh, and any kind of attempt to control things, uh, people push back on. Now, how does that impact your, your daily life and, and what you can do is develop islands um, of, of stability, of, you know, uh, of insight. I mean, what we're finding is that you're only as smart now as your network is because no one can process, no one can actually validate all the information that comes through your, you know, across your desk, comes through your screen, it's thrown at you. Uh, what you can do is assemble a network of people that can help you filter that and sources that you, know, you connect to that help you, help you navigate through life successfully. Um, and that um, you can simulate and, and a, you know, big, big deficit we're seeing is, you know, a lot of people don't have the kind of large family networks and, and clan networks that used to protect them in the past. Um, some places do, we don't, you know, in the kind of highly mobile, highly atomized world in the West. And, and that um, you can build a network that serves that function, that helps you, helps you get a job or helps you find the right uh, resources, um, helps you navigate through uh, the economic world in a way that, that benefits you. And the personal world, helping you find people that uh, you can have you know, deeper relationships with. Uh, everyone knows somebody. <laughs> uh, 
but it's not for them, but maybe for somebody else. Um, and that, uh, you know, it, it's, it's important to make sure that you're grounded. A lot of us are isolated now, um, uh, that we spend way too much time in front of the, the screen. I mean, I spent most of my life up, up until the last 15 years or so, you know, traveling around the world and travel, 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 do, do, do. And this is kind of relaxing for me to come back and just spend more time in front of the screen. So I have that good grounding, at least I think I'm, and then four kids and that whole thing, and, and, you know, that keeps me grounded. But if you haven't had that, then you, you and I have to admit, I even have to do it myself because, you know, you have to go out and ground yourself, uh, make sure that your ideas aren't too crazy. Your viewpoints on the world are too, you know, too far out there. Um, it's easy to go off on tangents when you're online, right? There's so much information, so much things are moving so quickly. There's so many patterns that want to suck you in to kind of a polarized view of the world uh, that uh, you constantly have to kind of reach out and touch people and interact with good friends and good networks in order to make sure that you don't go nutty, uh, go insane, and not in the, not in the kind of blah, 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 but just with you develop viewpoints and ways of looking at the world that don't uh, aren't beneficial to you or the people around you. Um, yes. So, yeah, you can do that, but it's almost always at the small scale. And you don't have to do it with you don't have to have just one network that you do this with. You can be part of multiple networks. Personally, I'd like to see more of the crypto stuff come in more in terms of equity building. I see this crypto space kind of getting huge right now in the background. And it's never had to deliver a product, which is pretty awesome. It's found a way to fund a constant exploration of every single nook and cranny in that in that arena um, through this kind of uh, speculation and value creation through this through this equity concept. Um, but I'd like to see some of those systems come into the you know personal network space uh, where you um, can get together with other people and build things simply easily and then there's an equity part of it and you don't have to have the kind of formal corporate or structured relationship that you would have in order to create value that that generates value you know for you i've found the most difficult thing i started a bunch of companies and it's the most difficult part is all that kind of contractual back end of that um and and how that how you set that up and uh, how do you measure contribution or you know, how do you get, you know, how much each person gets paid and all that other crap, but it gets in the way of actually getting things done. And there's a way that, that crypto can solve all that. So everything in your life, you could have a, you know, that's important to you economically um, and otherwise could have an equity piece to it where you're getting wealthier and and, and uh, more benefits accrue to you over time because of that, that backend uh, accounting system. Make sense or, Absolutely. you know, it's, it's trying to describe it like, you know, I was involved way back in like 2001 and three to three building the early social networking systems. You know, I, I written a report back at Forrester in 96 about it, but no one knew how to build it. Everyone's asking me and then I found a company starting to build it and got involved and, and describing social networking was like, you know, we did RSS and the early you know, blogging systems that allowed network blogging systems. We did the first podcast system, you know, with Adam Curry, that uh, MTV DJ, 
from back in early MTV days, if you don't remember that. You're too, you're too young for that. Full my time. Yeah, I know. Yeah, he was like the guy with the big hair from MTV. You put in Adam Curry, you'd, you'd see that. Um, but uh, describing social networking to people was like, I, I know, you might as well have been an alien speaking in a different uh, you know, alien tongue. They just really didn't get it. They, most people just like, they glazed over. It just their cognitive filters kicked in and they just... I How would that conversation it. go? Like, what would you say? Well, um, depends on the person. You know, you talk about networked blogging and and, and how, and, and I call it K-logs. At the time, I had a little uh, group of people and it got bigger. It got a couple thousand people in 2001, too, which is pretty big. This is like the whole universe of, of social networking at the, at the time was a couple thousand people, most of my, my, my uh, newsletter. And... Uh, the people outside of that space you try to explain it to is why would I do that? Why would anyone do that? That seems like the most insane thing. Is that just like, you know, from the early days, is that a CB radio? Or is like, what, you know, this seems like only nutty people would, would be involved. Um, you know, what would I write about? What would I even say? Right. Could, couldn't even imagine, you know, the, just doing it. And, um, it was immediate dismissal. It was like, and you know, that that's never going to happen. This like Pat, Pat statement, that's never going to happen. That's not going to happen. That's, I don't see it happening. If they even got that far, some people just glazed over and just, that was it. it was, they went catatonic on me and was like, no, okay. <laughs> this isn't going anywhere. So you're going to get, you kind of get a self-selected audience. You get mostly like a, tech people who kind of see it and they've been around it, you know, the next big thing enough that they see, Oh, wow. All right. And if they get it, it was cool. It's like, Whoa. All right. I think the question that I want to ask you now kind of feeds into that slightly. It's a question about sort of the functions, the new functions of let's say the individual new inner functions. So you mentioned before that, you know, the printing press came and it changed so many paradigms from perhaps people not being involved uh, in a lot of aspects of their lives, being sort of left out of key decision-making processes, for example, they gradually became more involved. You know, the printing press set set the ground for the emergence of democracy and other kinds of systems. With the new technological changes of our day and the network decision systems that exist outside of us, right, um, yep. that allows us to do a bunch of stuff, like you mentioned, like mobilize quickly and, and create its own form of cohesion. I'm interested in thinking about how does that change the humans, the new humans? So there was a human pre-printing press and a human post-printing press. Right. It, it's sort of, we, we could say that the networked paradigm creates this new experience economy where it's about images, affects, exchanging these, these things, but essentially they really are different functions inside the individual uh, you know our literacy and our cognitive makeup today is extremely you know has, bears the indelible mark of the networks that we live in and so my question to you is a little bit like how are these networks designing changing the us yeah changing us and how can we tap into that and how are military operatives worldwide tapping into that because take from the from the pamphlet to TikTok, it's it's there's such a big spectrum of, of different functions that are being revealed out of us. So that's kind of my question. 
Would yeah. You? I mean, first off, I mean, I don't think the military has even caught up to that. I mean, they, you know, I built systems for them to kind of get into that world a little bit, but it, they're they're not there. So, um, I mean, you know, states like Russia, different story. They're more geared towards you know disruption. It, you know, it's a strategy uh, out of weakness. So if you're weak, you move more towards the information side. Um, and you see that in Russia and, and you see it in China. Um, U.S. has some capabilities, but it's more a defensive game. And they're not, you know, not pushing the offensive ball in that space as, as aggressively as, as the other guys. Now, how is it changing us? Um, you know, we're definitely being rewired, right? Uh, thinking off the cuff, I mean, you know, where were we before the printing press? We, had, we were living within an oral narrative. A narrative of, of, of life of, and and this these stories that bound us together and um retelling those stories you know we're like that's how knowledge was passed down that's how cohesion was passed down is there were people were passing these narratives from one order to the next yeah and and um they were necessary uh you know they were part of religious ritual and everything else and we were you know it, attaching ourselves to these, these narratives and they carried us along. Um, and important, you know, cultural information was, was contained in them. Like for instance, uh, uh, the mysteries of Demeter and another, like it's, it's important information on how to actually uh, plant crops, right? Mm -hmm. That carried, I mean, imagine trying to solve the problem of carrying information, cultural information across generations. Hey, if you, you can't really write it down or it would be lost almost immediately, a story wouldn't be enough. And you actually take the story and you attach rituals to it. And it has to be exact. You have to do the ritual in this and this and this and this and this way. And all these rituals then become a, you know, important in and of themselves. But they're really just there as attachments to keep this information going from generation to generation. Then we have books and it blows it all apart. You can start, okay, printing books and that, you know, that information now can go across generations in a flash. And we started to move towards this kind of separate, I read I, in, in isolation. I can only, you only read for yourself for the most part. You don't, you're not part of this narrative. Um, and that uh, you can create these narratives that then, you know, transcend space and time. And, and um, we can have multiple narratives. Uh, and it, you know, change the structure of where we're at. And now we're having this kind of network thinking. We're not thinking in isolation anymore. We're thinking as part of a network and it's not part of a single narrative, even though some people would like this, you know, kind of force us into these narrative structures. Um, these narratives are maybe looking, the ones that are trying to force us into or look more like patterns. You know, bunches of, you know, the extreme versions would be, look like conspiracy patterns because they, the jumps between the nodes of information are, are not tenable if you actually look at them hard, mm -hmm. <laughs> you know, but they're trying to force us into these patterns that, uh, uh, that would tie us together. So if you agree with the pattern, then you're part of our network. Um, we think in, in terms of networks we, because we, you know, we can't process all this information is too much of a torrent that we need this extra help to do that for us. Um, but you know, doing pattern matching all the time. I mean, uh, at the very, very base level, is that you know when you when you go from 
reading and and and, and the long time periods between you know different you know bouts of reading, um, and then the time you have to formulate your thoughts to a world where the information is popping in like Twitter, pump 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 pump. It's too much. You can't process. You can't even read your own Twitter feed. It's too much to even even read it even quick or scan it. Oh, you can you can you can really just scan it at a very high level and look for bits of information that actually fit a pattern. So we're starting to move towards a kind of a pattern matching mentality. We mm-hmm. pick out bits of information and then we put it together into so we have our own little patterns that we're developing. And then we have these big ones, these big open source ones that are trying to pull us in politically. Um, so that I mean structurally that's how we're wired. Um, mm-hmm you know, how that actually plays out, we'll see. I mean, um, some, one of the, um, one of the downsides is that it, it makes this more tribal, right? And, and that old tribalism, you know, when Marshall McLuhan said, you know, we've become a global village, what he really was worried about is that we become global villagers. Okay. And a global villager is the kind of person who's like, it's very bloody minded is people who don't, toe the line of the village or the ones that are driven out or killed, you know, um, they constantly watching everybody else in the village to make sure that they're always, you know, that old man Smith over there in that barn is doing something terrible and everyone knows about it. Right. And if it's terrible enough, they go out and kill them or beat them or, or drive them out, which is the equivalent of killing them in many instances. So, um, some of the worst atrocities occurred in the villages. So how do we get out of that kind of villager future? Because the way we're, we're our, our uh, minds have been changed. I, I think maybe one of the things would be that artifact. Right. Right. That helps us build beneficial patterns. And would you say that that artifact <clears throat> is going to emerge at once at a societal scale for, for hundreds of millions of people, or would you say that that pattern matching, because today, or maybe I would argue that it has to be done a lot with some imagination and some creativity, or, or at least to me, it feels like, you know, Eric Davis said that whenever new technology comes in and opens new spaces, they first have to be mapped with the imagination or, or you know, at the further edges, because we don't really know how to make sense of them. So my question would be, Right. Do you reckon those societal artifacts uh, are going to emerge maybe around smaller tribes, but tribes that connect along, not the vectors of kin and geography, but along vectors like shared interests or personalities or uh, other sort of you know, shared neurological pathways, shared affects, really? Um, these, some of the dominant artifacts could start from a very small group, right? So look at Facebook, right? Started as a small network at Harvard, and then it attracted more, attracted Stanford, added other colleges on the Ivy League, and went up, 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 up. And the beauty of networking, the classic Metcalf's law, right? Each time you add another person, the network just doesn't, you know, go up multiplicatively, it goes up exponentially in terms of value. And, and um, if there is a network that actually provides that kind of value function, uh, and it does the kind of things that I'm talking about in terms of social cohesion, uh, you'll get sucked into it. And hopefully the ones that we get sucked into are, are the good ones. I mean, it could be the bad ones, right? Uh, 
they can grow, you know, grow out of nowhere and then kind of just zoom up. And, uh, you know, I'm looking for them to emerge. I, you know, I, you know, it's kind of like a blind man and <laughs> trying to reach out and find these things. I mean, like I was looking for the social networking stuff, you know, back in early 2000, you know, I know it's going to come. I just got to find it. And, uh, and trying to do that all by yourself or kind of force the function and get in there and create this stuff is I found exceedingly difficult. Um, there's too many precursor technologies and other things that have to happen or you have to actually just look for when it does emerge. Um, meanwhile, there's people who are trying to do this kind of stuff from the top down um, at the big companies and, or uh, at the open source level when we're looking at the tribe, the tribes online, trying to shout everybody down, kind of control things. Um, and going into corporations and going into government agencies sideways, because if, you, if you, networks can reach right into a bureaucracy and then flip people inside there, so the bureaucracy is non-functional when it comes to their issues. And um, doesn't even have to change the head or even the policy, the, the thing just kind of operates that in, in favor of the network that's, that's co-opted. Um, yeah, there's a lot of people trying to force the, force it from the top down. Mm -hmm. uh, and uh, though I do think that, you know, there will be there will be something that takes off because of that network dynamic. It may be out of the economic realm, right? Like that uh, that uh, alternative economy I'm talking about is like, you know, I do more transactions on this system because every transaction I do increases the value of that system, and and that uh, as that system becomes more valuable, I become more wealthy. I become uh, better off. And then I start adding other systems to it, social systems and, and other, you know, things that I'm doing and plop it into this thing. And that that turns into something that uh, uh, is constantly increasing my, my well-being. Uh, so finance and, or economics may be the way into this, the way they're changing this. What do you go looking for when you're like, you said you're, you've got your eyes out for some of these um, networks and perhaps some of the like, the uglier ones as well as perhaps some of the more constructive ones. Like what's your antenna picking up on? Oh, well, I've been talking about it. <laughs> okay, okay. Right, so uh, like uh, my last report was on, uh, I mean, the rise of corporations. And okay, kind of corporate power. You know, as the nation state's declining in power, it's hollowing out. It's lost control of its borders. It's lost control of its market system. It's lost control of its finance system. It's lost control of the messaging internally. It's lost people flows, everything. Information flow. It's hollow compared to where it was in the Cold War. It's a different world. And that hollowness means that all you get out of the big nation states are you know, helicopter money. Not even pack it. They didn't even put it in a program anymore. They just drop money on people. And um, military response, militarization of police, you know, anti-extremism, more you know, kind of oppressive technique, kind of amplified. Um, that's all it seems to be able to deliver. Um, so, uh, and it's also the nation state, you know, as a system is proving incapable of actually solving these kind of complex problems that come in from the global system. Um, there's too many moving parts and it lasts too long. We started off with you know 9/11 and terrorism, and that was just like caused stupid stuff like the Iraq War. I mean, Iraq had nothing to do with 9/11. Um, 
In fact, it created opportunities for that initial problem to even get worse with ISIS. Um, and then we have uh, uh, the financial crisis, which then had reverberation around the world, and it still does. And it's still none of the stuff was fixed. And now we have COVID, and that's having uh, a long-term effect that's probably never going to go away like the previous two. So you're getting this kind of accumulative kind of failure again and again and again, and everyone's failing. Uh, all the big nation states are failing. And um, in order to maintain cohesion domestically in the US, what we're seeing is that they're relying on corporations to do it for them. And I started writing in 2018 about, you know, that, that was the year it kind of shifted where they gave power, started giving power to corporations to kind of maintain social stability. And uh, which is like a classic military op, you know, stability ops, step ops. Um, but corporate corporations were running. And I think corporations were critical in, in defeating Trump in, in 2020. And people are looking at the election stuff, but that was just that's just stupid. If there were any kind of, and there was obviously at the at the social networking space, in the social networking space, that could have driven five, ten percent of the returns, towards or against. Um, just shifting that, just even slightly, um, and getting getting them off the center stage, and then kicking him off the network entirely and making him totally unviable as a candidate. And then wiping out uh, alternative networks and saying to everybody that you can't build an alternative network that can challenge us. You have to live by our rules and they kicked off parlor. And then there was these anti-counter-extremism uh, uh, efforts out of the White House. And, and these were all like going out onto the networks and the networks are trying to gather information on people start monitoring the blogs and wanting the, the posts of, uh, of military and, and, and federal personnel looking for extremists, mostly right wing. In fact, almost exclusively out right wing. It doesn't look at left wing extremism. And just start to layer on a lot of corporate led um, oppressive technologies, oppression technologies. And now we have the more recent ones where they're starting to, you know, go after co you know, COVID dissent. Anyone who's anti-vax, anyone who even expresses anything on that spectrum, many, um, you know, dissent against government policy is now considered it's misinformation. A dissent against the government's narrative is disinformation, but corporations are the ones that are taking care of it, and they're looking to create kind of a, a system that even the White House advocated. I can't even believe they said it. They wanted to, if somebody's kicked off one platform, they wanted to kick them off all platforms to mm -hmm. carry through. So um, that kind of system um, shows that, you know, corporations are getting all this power. Um, they demonstrated to the world that no one's above them. I mean, they kick, kick a seated U.S. president off off their systems and no one will do anything. So they could do it to any, any global leader. And given that most places around the world uh, the amount of the percentage of information they get from these social networks is higher than even the U.S. Uh, that's an, an important thing. Um, now that anyone who actually tries to challenge them in the from the political space can suddenly just lose their primary or lose their lose their seat in the next election, uh, and find that the messages that they're trying to get out blunted, and not going anywhere. I wonder why. It just doesn't. They don't get the likes they used to. They don't get the, the, the amplification they used to get. Uh, 
I think Liz Warren ran into that when she was running for president not too long ago, as soon as she took off her Facebook. Her numbers started dropping like crazy. Um, so uh, the end result is that uh, you know we have a system that will end up being run by corporations, and corporations will seek legitimacy by um, becoming the guarantors of social good, and social you know, stability. Um, and they'll do that by saying, okay, here's the political system. It's all moderated. It's all, you know, running smoothly. You don't get any extreme people. Uh, here's the social space or the, the public forum. Uh, big ideas that are, or dissent that's dangerous will be screened out. Those people silenced. Um, and that we're solving the problems because the state, you know, the nation states can't, uh, they'll start to take on global climate change, for instance, and they'll say, okay, I mean, the way to do that is that we'll start to nudge people in different directions. There's not going to be a debate on this. It's just heading towards what they, whatever ideas that they come up with, that they're the ones that they want to nudge us towards. And, you know, the idea of nudging is that you, you use an AI to, to um, you give it an incentive to increase the support for a given thing. And then you allow it free reign to play with different ads and different placement, different acceleration strategies. And they come up, it just kind of, measures its success based on that increase in support. And that'll cause all sorts of problems. Um, so it, it's gonna accelerate really quickly because we don't have any natural rights. We don't have any um, rights against corporate power. All of our rights, our rights, you know, free speech, petitioning, everything else was all built to protect us from nation states. Um, and we didn't anticipate in the last 10 years that corporations to get so powerful so quickly. They can do stuff the NSA and the nations that couldn't do. They can center and manipulate conversations down to the individual level, at the conversational level, and track people you know, across the platform and across the world and have individual identities that the government couldn't even hope to match. Um, so we, we need digital rights. And, and until we get digital rights, we're going to, I mean, that's another innovation we need. This thing goes in the right direction more often if we have uh, digital rights, right? A certain level of speech, a right to access, a right to petition, meaning if you're kicked off or, or unfairly treated, they'll actually respond to you. Because right now they kick you off, you get nothing. They won't even talk to you. Before I, I want to dive a little bit into that uh, conversation about digital rights, I want to ask you if you can envision uh, that in the future, these islands which we spoke about, can you envision them deploying these nudge technologies, technologies which basically are auto cults, which is this really cool idea that basically they automate cult building and inscribing someone into a cult. Could you imagine these islands using those same tools and techniques and resources as the big corporations do to sort of close themselves in and create a little bubble that they steer? Well, yeah, I mean, every 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 tech will have a, a smaller version of it that you'll be able to use. I mean, this tech is it going to be um, something that, that smaller groups can't use. Um, I mean, there's all sorts of stuff that could happen on the small group level, and like in terms of warfare, uh, you know, conversational, you know, chatbots. You see them pop up. I mean, okay, I mean, they they popped up in China, and they you know 
convinced a whole group of men to throw tons of dollars in. You know, they fell in love with these things. They threw money at them. They had to close them down after they soaked them for tens of millions of dollars. Um, there's a guy that just created a chat bot based on a dead fiance and totally screwing with his head as a result because it was so much like her, at least the way he thought it was. But those things, those conversational chatbots are allowed, could be very, very good at, especially if it's within the context of a character in terms of recruiting people and building these building networks and using this, you know, larger social network as a, as a recruitment ground. And um, you can do terrorist activities that way. You can do all sorts of things. You can build networks based on people thinking that they're saving, you know, uh, this character that approach them as a chatbot. So there's like all great, great things. I mean, and terrible things that you could do with these, these tech, this, this tech. Um, you have GPT-3. I mean, you can start to auto-generate things. Uh, that folded into a chatbot will be pretty interesting. Um, and that, um, yeah, I mean, you know, you thing is, is if you're a small group, accelerating it too much gets you in trouble, gets you kind of noticed. Right. You know, right. And that's, you know, what we saw with, uh, uh, you know, uh, parlors, they got too big and it became a competitor nuisance and they caught it off. Like they, no more cloud for you. No more email and no more SMS and no more anything, no more financial accounts, and no transaction processing. You're done. Everybody go to yeah go to go to Russia and only on the Russian system that means that you're going to be tiny as a result. Um, so um, can you remain small and use this tech to your advantage? Sure. Uh, the more encryption we have, the better, more protected we are. Um, that again is coming out of crypto, right? So it's like, of course, you know, it's like built into that. Um, if we're going to see more of that, then then we're going to it's going to come out of there. Uh, the nation states have been pretty good at. Uh, at uh, preventing people from from you know getting the encryption they need to protect themselves, uh, you know they don't want it to become ubiquitous because it makes their job harder and they'd have to buy more hardware. Things would become opaque and they'd have black spots in, in their in their surveillance networks. Um, but the downside is that it means all the information we have is even more easily hacked and, and accessed. So there's a whole industry now of people who actually just make our lives hell because they are trying to break into our systems. Um, I don't know if I answered your question correctly, but yeah, more or less because I, I, I guess um, what I was searching for, and you did allude to that, was the potential impact that small groups might have, or rather, you know, how would they fare in a landscape that is completely and hegemonically dominated by uh, these corporations, especially on the field of what Owen mentioned a while ago, which is the field of, of the mental, of truth purveyance, of uh, discourse and position. Can these islands create these sort of mimetic insurrections where you know, all of a sudden there's a different belief system there uh, spreading like wildfire um, out even under the hegemony of perhaps... Yeah, I think one of our, one of our blind spots is... Um, we tend to, you know, always try to think in terms of something that will spread to everybody. Yeah. Right. And everybody's going to, uh, you know, adopt. 
Um, and, you know, we tend to try to build tech or do things that will go, uh, I, I don't think that necessarily has to be the case. Um, how that operates, how, you know, that kind of growth operates in the future depends on the system you live in. So if you live in Russia, if you get too wealthy, they'll hit you on the head and take their stake, right? Because that's a, you know, cross-holding of the elite who run the system, make a ton of stuff. You have power. They want a piece of that or you get crushed. And then in China is if you get too big of your threat, you're not an insider, you're done. Um, in the US and probably potentially even the global system that, that comes out of that, um, if it continues to lock down, if it's like very, very uh, focused on anything that isn't in the kind of establishing pattern or, or, or narrative, uh, and say a small group does challenge that, they'll be squeezed out, right? Just seen as misinformation or 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 or, or bad code uh, that has to be uh, erased. So um, that that system, I think, is I call it the long night. You know, if we have these systems that are constantly you know, any kind of dissent, any kind of thing, something that's new, something that comes out of uh, out of left field. Uh, Alternative views, everything gets crushed. And it's all this kind of dominant patterns and, and dominance of, of those who are at the top of the network. And um, it's possible you know, to dominate from a very small position. Um, even the robotics makes military dominance, you know, physical dominance possible. Uh, you know, the more roboticized, the smarter those robots are. That allows you know a small group to control mass military force without actually even having to you know, recruit the bodies that we used to have to recruit to, to, to uh, fill out an army. Um, you know, I think maybe if you want to if you want to get your head around the maybe the new paradigm or a paradigm that may squeak out uh, is start to think in terms of like uh, you read Bruce Sterling's Eskis Matrix. No. I've met okay. him once. Okay. Yeah. Yeah. Bruce, Bruce used to interview me on his annual kind of on the well state of the world thing. And he's one of my favorite authors. And it's really kind of cool to be interviewed by that guy. Is um yeah, so he reads his matrix and it gives you a sense of uh, a different kind of world where humanity goes like this. We're all about trying to say everyone should be cohesive. Um but what about a world where everyone goes like that? You know, it goes off in their own direction without reference to the other folks, small groups, boom, we're gonna become extremely different. We can leverage technology to go any direction we want. Big groups, whatever, there may be some battles on the edges of that, but they're moving so fast and becoming so different so quickly um, that there's, you know, a thousand different directions and, you know, a million different directions you could take. And, you know, and the longer that persists, the more difference there is genetically, technologically, uh, culturally. I mean, it, it becomes a gulf between the two. Yeah. So it's, it really is. We create our own aliens. We become all aliens to each other. True aliens in the sense that we haven't ever experienced them since the species diverged way, way back when. Speciation almost. That is correct. Right. Um, oh yeah. If you add enough, if you add enough uh, cultural shift, you add enough 
um, sensory shift, AR modifications, you add enough biological shift uh, through DNA manipulation, you know, we're talking now with mRNA, you can start to, you know, express different proteins that will allow your body to move in different directions. Um, or even like the people who get vaccinated are in a different space than everybody else, right? Because all the other new mRNA vaccines are going to start rolling out and they're for everything. Staph, tetanus, bum, 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 one after another. And the more you don't, you're almost a different person. If you get sick, you walk into the hospital, the, the A and B, you're, you're walking Petri dish if you don't go in. You hadn't had all these other things. One of the things, and, and uh, you know, oh, and I guess you're already smiling because uh, you know what I'm going to say. Um, it is almost as if this balkanization or this extreme level of balkanization that we're discussing, an atomization is... Um, it's like the concept of Peter Schlotter, like of the egosphere, which is this idea that we are so atomized and like capitalism that we each live in our self-contained bubbles. And it could be the case that accelerating that maybe first at a mental level, but then at a speculative level, uh, you know, using biological alteration technologies and all those things that you mentioned, but I guess I wanted to get your thoughts on the idea that these ego spheres may well be designed. So maybe within the market, uh, the market will precipitate such variability, such variation of these immense possibilities of, of, of individual uh, expression. Right. That it's going to become so diverse that might that be a way to uh, undermine the hegemony of the long night? Is that maybe possible do you see any possibilities in that for creative expression or like what would be your thoughts on maybe steering some of those threads of speciation so to speak yeah I, I, yeah the extreme individualism that we saw at the end of the 20th century going into now um i think that's more of an artifact of the old printing world as it's impacted by the kind of this new electronic world and um I don't think it's really truly viable. I think maybe small groups will probably be more viable than individuals. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. Um, and that uh, as individuals, you'll be part of a larger structures and you have a certain amount of room to vary until you run up against their boundaries. But they're gonna be in everything you do and everyone's gonna be judging. <laughs> uh, you might have more room of maybe in a Russian system, but you know, if, if you get powerful or you do something interesting, They'll want a piece, right? And uh, in China, if you don't fit the old Confucian structure and model, um, then you're out. And they have a structure of society that should be, or is their ideal. And what that's what they're trying to use the system to kind of force everybody into. Um, yeah, as an individual, I don't think you can get enough power. You can, you can disrupt. Mm -hmm. Uh, but um, if they're in everything you're doing, man, I don't know. I don't think you can. Uh, as a group, cleave off. Uh, you know, there's enough. There's enough. You know, these alternative networks. You may find a way to get away or carve off a piece, but they can't yeah. get too big. And if they get too big, they're competitors with the big networks. 
um, and their AIs and their, their capabilities. Um, and these alternative networks will be able to be big enough that they can um, potentially generate their own technology. And you know, it's, that's always a tough thing with a lot of alternative networks is there, there's not enough technologists in the group, right? There's people who love farming and there are people who love you know, you know, you know, making things and often a lot of primitivism, but that's not gonna save you necessarily long-term. Yeah. You know, you're stepping outside, but you're not able to build this stuff. You're not able to code. Um, I think this is like hoping out with the uh, the European men's movement I mentioned, like to hopefully reach like the next generation of techie guys and try to get a sense of there are more subcultural small network options and opportunities available. Hopefully, actually provide some of those opportunities rather than going and being being a soldier for one of the big tech giants, right? essentially. Well, you can get a lot of insight and, and make a lot of money and a lot of independence by being a soldier for the big tech giants That's um, or the big Wall Street firms or whatever. Um, but there's a, a big brain drain right now going out of the Wall Street firms to crypto. You make more money faster mm -hmm. and do more interesting stuff, get more independence. Um, I mean, what do you need? You, know, you can make a couple million and you start building tech. You never have to worry about money again. Uh, depends on your lifestyle. I mean, if you have a big lifestyle, then it's, then it's more than that. But So, uh, yeah, it, it's good to have a diversity of, of talent in the, in the group. Um, it's always good to have some level of technical acumen, though, um, mm -hmm. whether it's uh, in financial systems or, or crypto or, or just generic programming to build things um, or uh, mechanical or electrical engineering, you know, able to work on everything from robots to, to uh, other systems, microgrids. Uh, can't do it, you know, if you take too much of a primitive approach, you know. And I think all of the movements that we're talking about, you're talking about the men's men movement, it, it has appeal to that group. Uh, it just have to be packaged in the right way. Because yeah. These guys are isolated, <laughs> and, you know, sitting behind their screens. Um, there's a there's a way to actually motivate them in a positive way that doesn't involve just shit posting. Right? Absolutely, and doesn't lead them into just like on the one hand <laughs> being lonely, nihilistic. yeah, lonely. nihilistic, and lonely. being like getting pulled off into fascism or the alt right, and just wanting to swing their will across the world. There's some kind of healthy middle way. And there's, there's a lot of the techie guys are going to be in that zone. And if we can reach them and perhaps download some of these ideas about the long night, about alternative networked economies and social operating systems, we might stand a chance of getting through this. That's kind of where my game and my play is at at the moment. Yep. Yeah, crafting a message that actually attracts them. And then building things that are interesting that add to the add value to the group, add value to the network that you're creating. Mm -hmm. um, mm -hmm. And that requires like there's a physical touch and there's the, the kind of emotional connection you have with the group. It's a uh, ability to actually have it yield tangible results. 
help each other, uh, make it mutually beneficial, and have it you know a positive direction that uh, uh, where you know it helps the people that are falling behind. The like that's you know all generic things that actually have to be done to, to create a healthy group. Absolutely. As well as then bringing in just the, the art and the storytelling side as well. Like I've always been fascinated. I was a, a heavy metal kid ever since I was like 13 or so. I grew my hair long and started dressing black and going to these concerts and having this sense of, well, whatever's going on in the mainstream, fuck that, because there's this invisible world that has its own identity and its own aesthetic and its own music that is alive. And unfortunately it's kind of nihilistic and lacks the, uh, the world building skills. So it just becomes an aesthetic phenomenon. Right. But stitching the two together and being able to produce something like Daniel would say, a kind of like designed ontology or performed ontology that is tech literate, but also just beautiful and artistic and gets artists turned on as much as it does tech nerds. Right. Cause so, I don't know how to do that. No, no, <laughs> no, 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 no. I mean, this is uh, yeah. Yeah, 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 yeah. Now I'm just riffing. I'm saying this is, this is what <laughs> making, making maybe a bridge here. Uh, Sirkov, he wrote this article called, I think America burns or America sings. And I think uh, you must be familiar with it, John, where he takes, <laughs> this five finger death punch song uh, and uses it and its lyrics to kind of boast with a little bravado uh, about what he's doing to, to America. Uh, basically the lyrics are like, you know, basically saying fuck to a series of, of, of institutions that compose the value system of the United States and of the West and by taking this, 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 these lyrics, and he was pointing at them saying, look, uh, you know, we are manipulating your consciousness and you don't even know what to do about it. Or there's like this famous sentence that Cherkov said about that. I don't know to what extent this is just bravado or there's actually a level of being creative with the disruption. But I guess that just to complement what Owen said, to disrupt the truth uh, build the truth purveyance institutions of any given society is to me key. Uh, you know, the church had to change when the printing press came heavily. Uh, when when the industrial revolution came, the we had academies instead of churches, and we had governments instead of kings. So now we have networks. So these institutions that are entitled to purvey truths and belief, their craft needs to change. And I believe that that might be something. Uh, you know, it speaks to the artistic part of the deal that that Owen was mentioning. Oh yeah, no, I mean there has to be institutional reform. Um, I mean the institutions we have today are, are clearly uh, operating at a deficit. They're just not producing the results that we want them to produce. Uh, they're out of ideas, and we're just, you know, we're wanting we want ideas, we want new new things, um, and we're not getting. We're just getting told that hey, this is the way it has to be. Listen to us. <laughs> you know, um, we'll fix things, and, and they don't fix things. Uh, and that, uh, yeah, uh, you know, the dissent function is is useful. You just you know, trying to figure out how to actually use the dissent function effectively is is going to be 
turning out to be traumatic for the existing institutions, right? Mm-hmm. You know, they see it as a threat. Everything is now a threat. You know, you know, if you don't comply with vaccines, you're a threat. If you don't do this, I mean, personally, I mean, I'm like on the vaccine thing. I, I get a vaccine. Family got a vaccine. It's easy. It's easy. And it's just, it's a, it's a no brainer for me. It's not the fight I want to fight. Um, not a dissent worth hanging on to. Um, but, you know, all the good ideas will come out of the dissent. You know, if some prevailing ideas were absolutely wrong, the only way we're going to actually find it in the system that actually forces that prevailing idea onto us is the dissent will rise up and say it's wrong. Um, if that dissent is crushed every single time uh, it starts to rise up, um, you have an inability to change. And then if there's a big problem that comes, a big complex problem, you don't, your, your quiver is going to be empty. I mean, you only have, you know, the approved ideas and you don't have anything that's unapproved because you banned them. Uh, and complex problems, if anything, you require a, a, a deep quiver, a deep uh, uh, bench of, of, of ideas and capabilities and, and perspectives. You got to have that, or you're you're going into this uh, guaranteed to lose. Mm-hmm. So, um, yeah, how do you build dissent effectively? Yeah, and and, and incorporate it into the existing institutions. Yeah, that's. I'm still thinking about that. I'll keep on working on it. It's a problem I'll keep on working on. That's but, the big um, question, right? Yeah, that's definitely it. It'll solve a lot of the problems that we have today if we can figure out how to do that. I think instead of enforcing or trying to force the dissent into a box by banning it, is that you use opt-in methodologies. It's equity. If you feel like you're part of something, you're willing to work for. It. You're willing to contribute to make it make make it better because you you know it's going to provide you tangible benefit. It's just not this idea that oh, uh, you really aren't at risk for for the disease. And uh, vaccine may or may not work, but it's for somebody else that probably doesn't even like you, right? And you have to go take a vaccine. It's like, no, I don't. Why, why should I do that? Well, if it's like, okay, this is part of us as a nation, as a group, and here's the, um, this will, economy will, will do better, this society will do better, and, and you have tangible benefit in that. And we can, and you know, there's a counting that, provides you feedback that that shows you that that that's the case uh your wealth will increase faster and there's you know we can demonstrate to that and then your your uh social relationships will get stronger we can show you that uh, then why wouldn't you right and of course you would and uh, you know uh, that kind of system you're more likely to trust the people that are telling you things right uh, if, if somebody says, okay, yeah, uh, you know, here's something I developed. I think it's work will work. And here's all the tests I did. I think this is, is, is viable. And they're part of that group. That's actually moving you forward. You'll go, sure. Yeah, I'll do that. You know, it's a, if, if it's a company that you know, you're part of and they provide you a new tool and say, this is really going to work for you. And, and you've had great experiences with this company in the past. You'll probably take that tool and give it a go because you trust it. We've seen benefits as a result of interacting with it. 
Um, yeah, how do we change that dynamic, right? Hmm. How do we make it opt in? Uh, create this like center of gravity that everyone just kind of right. And no one, no one's even asking that. No one's even trying to figure out how to do that. That's the essence of governance in that in the 21st century is how to create the opt-in dynamic. Because it sounds very much like a guild or like the credit thing that the Templars used to do in the Mediterranean. Or it sounds like, you know, that this Yeah, but how do, you do, how do you do it with everybody? How do you do? You start small. You don't do it with everybody. Early adopters, maybe. That's, that's my thought. Right. I mean, but if you're, gonna, if you're going to, like, granted, if you're going to build alternative networks and this is going to be your structure, maybe the you know, Templar model, whatever, all the variants that we've seen in the past, figure out how, to, how it works in the online world and do it. But if we're going to take the existing societies and not kind of like go through revolutions in order to change things yeah. and then mutate them, yeah, change right. them in order. Yeah. And how do you build opt-in into networked opt-in into the existing structures? That's a big question. Right. And, and without having to kill a lot of people in the process or I having a lot of people die in the process because it, these wars tend to be chaotic. You know, uh, Girard says that there's probably two ways to deal with mimetic rivalry. One is to kill scapegoats, which is what we don't want. And the other one is to expand to new territories. And those today might be only available via technology and, and the new vistas that they open up. So I guess that the answer will be precisely, I guess, what I mean, that's not completely true. There's also the, uh, the having the religion that binds people together and prevents the scapegoating. Right, right, right. Okay. Uh, so... Maybe excluding that opportunity, I guess that the new. I guess we're just reiterating the idea of a startup, but in this well, case, that's like like Peter Thiel's theory of, of the way he resolves Gerard. John Rob, do you know do you know Gerard? I'm just yeah doing, yeah yeah. Because yeah. Peter Thiel's theory, right, is that that's why he he just wants more market capitalism because it's um, more expansion, more avenues for desire prevent people getting caught up in the mimeticism and leading them to the just competing for smaller pies, which there's a truth to. Yeah. Um, it's just that expand, expand, expand isn't necessarily the story that works with finite resources. Oh, unless you, unless you, um, well, you, you move to kind of a networked version of, of markets and then you move to digital goods versus physical goods. Uh-huh. Okay. So once you go AR, yeah, the, the real the real trick here is as the way they're going to get us off this uh, physical world, physical goods expansion. Everyone, I mean, world can't ex can't support everyone moving into the middle class. All eight billion of us living the way we lived in the 20th century, even the lower middle class. But you know, all of that energy, all of that, all of those goods is just ripped the whole thing apart. So what do you do? Well, you you uh, have minimal livable spaces, but all of the play is in AR. Augmented reality, not VR where you go to a fake world. I mean, augmented reality where you digitally manage the world that you're in and then, or alter the world that you're in. Um, if you want to get a sense of how, how that world kind of works is, do you guys ever um, play Skyrim? Yeah. Okay, so use the mods in Skyrim. Okay, there's about 20 mods or so coming in at Nexus every day, new ones. They mod everything, and they can. You can do the the graphical mods that can change the shading, the tint, the the you know you can make it 
darker during the day and lighter during the night. Uh, you can modify the clothing. You can modify the, you know, everything. I mean, structure. You can add the, change the dialogue. You can change all of that stuff. It's possible with AR in your real life. So you can put everyone in Victorian clothes if you want. You could put everyone, you can change, add soundtracks. You can create, you go into a, a modest home, you know, a minimalist home, and uh, it can look like the biggest mansion in the world. And you can design deeply imprinted senses of reality, of belief, and of social modalities to the point right. that you like complete other spaces. Or other yeah, I mean, it, it, you know, if, if you took that the stuff off or turned it off, the reality would be drab in comparison. Even the best reality you could have today would look drab in comparison once you took those filters off. Um, and I, all, some of these AIs can do this in real time. So if you're driving along and it, it's sunny out, you can make it rainy. You know, it's in real time. I mean, it's all modified for your perception in real time. Um, add characters in your house if you're older and alone that talk to you and interact with you, that uh, are companions, constant, at whatever level that you're comfortable with and it's good for you. Um, but that you reality is that reality can be so competitive. And then that's the economy, right? What? The only thing you don't solve is the problem of sex unless you have really good VR porn and sex robots. Yeah. Or you know, yeah, exactly. Like, I mean, if we're gonna stick with Gerard, like sex is one of the core points of this rivalry. And this is where so I'm like, yes to everything, but I think there's a deeper cultural practice layer and again this brings me back to the working with men stuff like working and looking at sex hard and being like this is the thing that's going to be the thorn in our side you, you do know you do know that they can actually uh, stimulate orgasms by stimulating the brain wow. sure they've been doing that since the 60s you could do that but the problem is the people who actually have that they end up being addicted that's yeah. it. So we can build the AR future where everybody's getting downloaded orgasms. But yeah, I mean, uh, no, that's, that's a dead end too, right? Yeah. Exactly. There'll By be definition. Frustration. Because the one guy who does go and get laid and then tells all his friends, hey guys, you know what? I actually got laid for real. And then everyone's like, shit, I want that. Well, yeah, <laughs> yeah, I know. But if, in an AR world, that would all, you know, all be modified, right? It wouldn't be, she wouldn't be the woman that mm -hmm. she is in real life she'd be modified and then she probably has a way of, of modifying herself to other people which may be enforced by the system that you actually have to see so you wouldn't actually be able to see her in real life unless you pop the stuff off but you know you don't want to want to experience anything after that without it right so it becomes a whole nother layer of complexity and, and difficulty i mean the uh you already see at the edges in japan right 30 percent of the people, young, younger people aren't going to get married or even have a significant relationship. It's just not. They're just capping it and staying mostly online and doing that. This is a very, you know, highly urban situation. And then you see populations are already peaked in the West. Every, every, everywhere outside of Africa, populations are already peaked. So it's only Africa that's going up still. And the more that's electrified, you know, so if you add electricity to the house, population falls. That'll 
work the same way in Africa too. It's gonna just peak it off quick. And you add AR to the mix, population decreases faster. So it is potential that by the end of the century, we'll have a population of 2 billion people. <laughs> you know what I mean? It will be like rapidly dwindling down. Um, and those people who are able to have the, the, the balance of having kids and physical relationships with minimal AR interference, um, you know, be the only ones left. Only ones likely to have any kind of progeny go off in the future. Everyone else is just lost in this space, and willingly do it. There wouldn't be any kind of eugenics or anything like that, or any kind of uh, any kind of uh, disaster where people are killed off. They just just die out of old age. And I think that maybe I'm just going to be a little bit speculative here. When the population caps so severely, uh, obviously the older institutions will have to reinvent themselves and perish. And it feels to me like, mm, you know. Manuel Delanda in the War in, in the Age of Intelligent Machines speak of, speaks about the, the machinic phylum, this idea that machines have lineages, as I'm sure you're, you're kind of aware. Yeah. And part of, part of my pursuit is, as I said, ontological design. And, and, and it's this idea that at the intersection of, uh, maybe, it's, maybe it's wishful of me uh, and misinformed of me to say that in warfare, there are, you know, there's a portion of a regular warfare that is ontological design, that is this intervention into the life worlds of individuals. But it also seems to me that as the market and uh, as the market sort of mixes with the war machine in a way, because so much of them are, they're so bound in such a way, that people will have, will purchase the curation and the design of these life worlds. Because you download mods, you don't create them yourselves for Skyrim. The same might be said for life worlds now i want to be this now i want to be that it's going to be perhaps say same function as the church used to have back in the day purveying reality but oh, yeah no that's exactly it will the corporations be the one actually dictating that reality to you? will they have a closed system like apple has with their phone and say okay this is our version you know we have multiple versions of reality but these are going to be closely curated Yes. And you will have a limited amount of apps or other things that you can do within them. And everything transaction with them, every every digital good that goes flows through it is going to go through our system. Yeah. And we'll take 30% like they do with apps. 30% of every transaction goes to them. That's a nightmare world, right? Because then they start applying rules and morality or whatever that based on some whoever's co-opted the corporation. And they dictated to everybody. I mean, and you know, limitations on what you can do and what has to happen. An open world, on the other hand, something that comes out of uh, the open space is that there's mods that go through the roof. They go everywhere. They do everything, right? Um, no limits to that. And I think it, that's probably the space that we're probably going to be able to find more of a balance longer term if we can get into that. There will be people who will figure out how to live with it effectively. Personally, I tend to think in terms of using it more as a, as a, a tool to become more productive, more capable, you know, learn more faster. Uh, if I do learn something, I can capture it and share it, all right? Rather than, than the, uh, um, than the uh, kind of masturbatory kind of element of it, right? Because I mean, the drugs drugs were kind of self-masturbation of a sort and then, or masturbation of a sort, and then, uh, you know, 
a lot of VR will be that way, you know, just yeah, mental yeah. play. It's not even play. It's just like, yeah. But yeah. And you could even say that beyond the functional reality mods of helping me learn faster and, and, and do all of these functional things faster. You could also say that the reality cohering mod being shared by a group of people might also come into play in that. Right. Uh, so, so that, there you go. To a certain extent, these groups, and then we, we just went off, we went off on this tangent. We, we found a piece that actually is important is that what you're doing when you form a group is you're creating a version of reality, a consensus reality. Right. That serves to ground you. Right. Um, and that consensus reality is, is important to have. And it's more explicit when you get to AR. Right. And you could even it's say that. visual and auditory and, 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 and uh, you know, structural and, and it impacts, you know, what people are wearing and what, you know, their reactions in the soundtrack, it, you know, that consensus reality has some kind of very tangible aspects, but now it's a little less so. Um, but yeah, you're, you're building consensus reality that you can live with. As if it was a shared brain that sort of lives in the space between all these members of this group where, Obviously, you know, using the technologies that we already have today, it can basically use the every group's inputs and digital life, feed it into a self-learning social artifact at the small scale. All right. of a sudden, you can you can you have a guild, but 2.0. Or you have you have a a tribe, like the old style tribe, and except instead of the natural world as the as the the range in which they operate. You have this virtual world, this this online world, this information world that you're 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 traveling within, and succeeding and 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 defeating enemies and and uh, surviving. Right? Which, yeah, and you mentioned goes, some, the, the, the traveling and the nomad aspect. I think is important because uh, you know these coherent these hypothetical mods. I I wouldn't think that they'd exist in a pre-designed uh world rather they're like these little arcs that can navigate the chaos of the epistemic fields out there by mimicking what the tribe did in the past in the same way that the nomadic tribe would look at their environment and see the storms and the oh that that's the storm god and they would try to make sense via imagination and ritual and these very human very paleolithic uh biological resources so what we do today in the wild landscapes of, of, of the internet sphere in the networked world. Right, yeah. yeah. I mean, you could definitely travel everywhere. You can go as a group okay. to better hunting grounds and <laughs> better, better uh, um, environments. Um, you can take on larger foes together and then retreat away and, and move on to, to other things. Um, yeah, it's a very, yeah, it's a, powerful way of looking at it. And that's a small group. I mean, it's not the big group. It's not the, you know, you can get, become a part of a tribal coalition or, or, but these bigger kind of patterns here that we have now are these big tribal confederations are, are really crude. Um, yeah. Yeah. Not anything, not anything you actually should spend much time with. It's just, just focus on on uh, on the smaller group that gets you through the day and gets you through the week and gets you through the year and then makes your life success a success long term. Values over enemies. All right. Well, look, that one what one one of the key things with the tribal perspective, it changes everything. 
And we, we've never really truly, we've kind of created simulations in the economy and, and in our society to kind of get around this problem is that everybody you interact with in the tribe is there for the long term, right? If you make an investment in somebody, it's because it increases your tribe survival. Uh, you know, you're bound to each other. You're just, you're, you, uh, you'll give them things. You know, you don't expect any remuneration because they're they're here with you and they're going to go long term with you. And if they're successful, you're successful. Um, you're you know, more successful together. Um, and that's a kind of a gifting economy. And you know, it's like if I have extra, you have extra, or you can if you can use it. Go ahead, please. On and on and on. Um, then we, you know, when we started trading. Outside of our group, we bartered. We did that. You know, the transaction has to clear, has to be equal value. That's when tribes did that. It was only with enemies, right? You only had to have a clearing a transaction that cleared is with somebody who you didn't trust and you thought was an enemy, but you can achieve some level of mutual benefit. Um, and then we scaled that, trying to because you know, we didn't have any systems to do that kind of accounting or actually provide that kind of tribal internal structure externally through legal systems and through uh, contractual systems and, and uh, through market systems and pricing and things like this. Those are, these things are all artificial ways of getting around the problems associated with going outside of the tribal group. Yeah. Um, you know, way of establishing that trust and that kind of long-term feeling, yeah. but you never quite get there. You know, can Simulacra. you get there inside a group? What? Simulacra of kin. Yeah. Yep. Fictive kinship. Right. Can you create fictive kinship? This I'm in this for the long term with you. You got to okay. be sure about this person, even if you know. Even if it turns out bad, though, it's not completely bad necessarily. <laughs> um, that there's some benefit from it. I don't know. I, you know how can you do that? Can you create that kind of? I'm investing in you because I'm with you on this long term. I'm, you know, willing to share whatever I have with extra. Mm. Thinking in terms of can you do it? Can you can you run a gifting economy inside your group and it, and and it makes sense? And if you can't, why why can't you? Mm. That's an interesting question. I tend to do this with my neighbors and stuff. If I have extra stuff, here you go, here you go, here you go, here you go, here you go. Here you go. I give stuff away all constantly. I you know I don't need all that stuff. Uh, or people like you know come visit. Oh yeah, take this. Want this book here, right? And those are usually people that are going to be around for a long while. So um, that's the problem. Many of the new creative forms of crypto, or, or some that I've been involved with, like Holochain and all of that. There, there's a latent promise in there that they can create this. Yeah, they see. It's a, again, it's that artificial creation of the. You know, how do you get around the tribal deficit, right, in life? And how do you, um, can you use technology to, to, to work around that and still achieve the scale? Well, you, maybe you can, right? You can do certain things, like maybe you have some opt-in at a, at a national scale, but really the only thing may work is on a smaller uh, tribal level. Where there's that level of time investment. Well, yeah, well, there is more, yeah, it's more time investment. Uh, and if there are technologies that allow you to scale it, 
it will be something that affects the Dunbar number, right? Mm. Right. So it would be something that goes, okay, I can see a group up to 140 people, but you know, how do you get beyond that? You know, how do you get a level of trust or knowledge of people that goes beyond the 140? If there's a tech that solves that, I haven't seen it yet. Um, that you can get up to 1400 and still have that level of trust. Or you can get the 140,000 and still have it. Can you? But there is possibly a way to do that. And I think that comes back to that original thing we were talking about, the AIs as intermediaries, as that interstitial tissue, that that mediation layer that, they, that uh, you know, watches what we do and then modifies it and then makes it easier for us to trust people. And uh, I don't know how to do that, but I have a feeling that it might be there, might be possible. We did it once. It's weird, right? It's like we're trying to do history again. Right. Yeah. yeah we got this far and then we invented digital and then it's back to stage one. Yeah. Well, we have all these, we built all these workarounds in society to scale society. You know, how to go from, you know, the small group that we really cracked that nut. We figured out the small group perfectly well. I mean, it was the tribe is the cockroach of history. It's there since the beginning. Of when we were human, we started thinking about time. Yeah, 98% of our history as human beings was spent in tribes. And then we have this last little bit that goes, Whoa! it goes, it's scalable. I mean, we're all indigenous, right? That That's the truth. The truth of the matter is just that we have this little layer of, of, of uh, scalable social structures that, that we've experienced and we have some history with, some a little bit more than others. Um, but in the larger scheme of things, it's just a tiny bit of our, our, our biological history our legacy. Um, and then uh, how do we get that back? How do we get around all these workarounds, these, these kind of hacks? Uh, do we do something better? Maybe go back to that original structure and, and improve on it. Yeah, that's pretty cool. Yeah, it'd be interesting to see if we can do it. Mm. Renovate the covenants we made 10,000 years ago with technology. Yeah, you know, I mean, you know, we were always building technology, just at a slower rate. Yeah. <laughs> and a slower, perfect, you know, I mean, look at the uh, uh, the arrowheads that, that predominated when the uh, uh, the Americas were uh, colonized initially uh, by human beings coming in from, from Asia. The, uh -huh. you know, the Clovis uh, arrowheads, uh, that was a technology that they found the same flint all across the North America percolated, changed everything, allowed them to take on the big beasts, allowed them to take on the, you know, they wiped out all of the major fauna in North America in a thousand years, killed them all, just from a, from a technological innovation. Uh, up to that point, if they didn't have that, they would have all been preyed upon by bears that were as tall, you know, tall at the haunch as if we were, you know, Another we were tall. It is as yeah. if it was giving it a, giving us an offer we cannot refuse. <clears throat> right. On one hand, you make a good covenant, you will have tremendous success. If you do not, you'll just be wiped out. And that's the covenant, that's the, the, the tree of evolution of technology and humans braided together. Right. We're, we're on this ascent slope. We've been on this ascent slope since we stepped off the animal train. <laughs> you know, you know, animals are sideways. Evolution and other things go like this. It goes some. Offshoots are better. Your, your, your subgroup may be optimized for something that doesn't last, right? You're gone. 
And then we got this technology ascent and we've are playing that out and we're going and going, and going. And there's people who want to say, okay, let's just stop. Let's get, stop going to, you know, up to space or doing this. And you can't, you can't stop. We're yeah. not built that way. And then uh, we didn't like uh, who is actually steering. Are we steering or facilitating? Well, there's, there's two constants since um, prehistory, right? There's the technology curve and population curve. And the population curve is now peaked, right? It's, 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 yes. we've, we've hit the edge of the peak and This is as much as it can go. Um, and it's like unlikely given the kind of cultural factors that we're seeing develop now that it will continue to see a population expansion. Yes. Okay, it's going to slow down. And if one or two or three out of every 10 people have kids, because of longevity increases and the like, uh, that may, may be enough to keep steady state. <laughs> yeah, um, it's kind of wild stuff as we start to move down the ascent, you know, descent slope. And all of our calculations up to that point, we started thinking in terms of people being expendable. Always more, 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 more. Now you start in the descent slope, you start to think of every single person is like super precious. Every single kid, you've got to pour resources in. Oh, Jesus, I like that. Yeah, no, it changes all the dynamics. Um, but you don't want to do it in the same, in the kind of way we did in the 80s in the US. It's like the 90s is, uh, you know, you know, you're so scared about them going out, their play day, they're surrounded in cotton, you know? play dates and, and plan things and no surprises and no nothing that they ever could contradict them. Uh, if they anything goes wrong, they leave and abandon the situation. Uh, they never have any physical contact contact because you know fighting is bad, but fighting is how you establish physical boundaries, you know? It's like a little bit. I mean there's only to gouge an eye out or you know do some permanent damage, but some kind of physical Interaction establishes us as uh, social beings. Uh, I know I won't hit somebody or do something that much because that will make them cry or make them mad or make them um, unwilling to work with me in the future. So, um, yeah, so yeah, yeah, that's the problem is how do you invest in a way that isn't like frightened investing or like I'm so risk averse that I can't, this is so precious, I can't, I can't, uh, take any, allow it to actually grow effectively. I have to keep it in the greenhouse where all the conditions have to be perfectly right. And if, uh, you know, with greenhouse plants, if you take them out and put them in the wind, it'll just, you know, they don't, they never develop the kind of stock or, you know, and, and uh, structures necessary to actually even handle even a slight wind or slight change in, in, in moisture. They just die. When you mentioned the technology curve also accelerating, why you what do you mean by that? Because population is just a number that stacks. Technological innovations is that what you're talking about? Yeah, uh, technological innovation. I mean, it, it's been going up on an exponential curve. Same thing with population. The population just hit the wall. Okay. Right. And is technology uh, still accelerating exponentially in terms of like innovations year upon year, Moore's law? Yes, and. and it has, you know, we're thinking in terms of the big leaps uh, that we saw in, in physics in the, in the 20th century, but it's expanding across so many new areas. There's a horizontal expansion that, that we didn't have back then. We were talking about big leaps in narrow areas. Now we have it across, you know, innumerable number of, of, of technologies and, and, 
and, and focus areas. Um, yeah, I mean, it, it's an interesting thing to, you know, watch that go. I mean, you know, it, most people would measure, say, for instance, like going across a travel and saying travel is not increasing because we used to go faster and faster and faster and faster and we could hit the jet plane. We didn't go to, you know, hyper hypersonic jets, didn't cross the Atlantic in three hours, but the, that's not the point. At that point, we started to have electronic communication. Electronic communication, the bandwidth of the interaction started, kept on going up, 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 up. Now you have Zoom calls and then you have virtual in presence and you get the 90% of the benefit in a second. It's not so much about the bodies moving, but the information itself moving, because that's what's doing the steering. Right. Well, the body was never important in the first place. It really was just the information exchange. The conversation was actually the value and the thing that everyone was investing in. The body is not the uh, not the important part. It's a- well, yes and no, because I'd argue that the information exchange is largely there to keep the body alive and intact. Oh, yeah, Sometimes. definitely. So, so we can't... But getting it to the negative place... Is that mm-hmm. that important? But get, no, 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 not getting to the place. No, no, no. I guess I'm just jumping in and being like <laughs> the warning sign. I always get a bit triggered even when it, it sounds like it's going off into the information is more important than the bodies upon which they sit. Right. No, Maybe there's I'm definitely, not. you can definitely get some experience by traveling. But if you can get 90% of the information transfer between two people, in a second for almost no cost. Yeah. I mean, why would you go keep, you know, and that that experience level keeps on getting closer and closer towards actually being there, maybe even more than being there because you start making an ideal, right? Start adding things to it to exceed what you would get out of normal reality. Um, yeah. It's, it's important to, to focus in on the thing that actually is important that's being invested in. That's the key to the curve. Mm-hmm. And it feels right. like the relationship between the memes, as it as it facilitates the emergence, I don't know, it feels like that's the important bit to me in many ways. The relationship between the memes and the memes of like people exchanging that information. Um, because look at what we're doing right now. It feels like... Oh, memetic exchange is pretty cool. I'd, I'd like to see a translation device for that. Yeah, I was kind of excited when I saw the uh, one of the new uh, Google translations. They had a zero-day translation system. It had a what? Meaning a zero-day translation system. Okay. That, okay, so it can go from Korean to French. And there was like no in-between text. So how do you get that way? You're Korean to English and English to French. But it had to do that by keeping it conceptually correct. It, it, what it did is um, it could go zero day between any languages that it had in the system because it went to a conceptual layer. So it took whatever somebody was saying, add, put it into a conceptual layer, and then that allowed, since there was a common reference point, go straight in. So, uh, you know, how do you, how do you get that con- you know, conceptual layer and advance that? Is that something tangible? Is that something you can actually move forward and, and, and use to communicate and, and build upon? Now that starts to get really cool. Uh, I don't even think they were even looking at that concept. I mean, they were just saying, oh, the black box was able to do this. It built a, con- a conceptual connection that allowed us to do zero-day translation. Yeah. 
because what, what, what I felt and I worked in virtual reality for a long time is that as we're approaching these new technologies, oftentimes we think and create in them using just a direct translation from a previous domain. So it's like, oh, museums are cool. Let's do VR museums. No, but like the thing about going to a museum is doing it live. The affordances of a new medium necessitate a new way to think about the problem altogether. And I think that's what's, I, obviously it's natural the first time we approach new problems to fall into that pitfall, but it's also annoying that as we predict the future, we're, we're still scaffolded on the concepts of and domains of our time. Oh yeah, the, the, the physical visiting, going to a museum that's actually uh, digital is pretty cool. I've done a couple down in New York and it's, it's fun. You go with other people and they create this digital experience. Right, you right. Know, it's it's amazing, and, and that could be easily, you know, I'm walking in Pompeii, right? Yeah, but and um, everything is around me, like I'm right there, and it's it's tactile. That is the kind of thing that you can do as a as a group and, and, and experience and have really cool stuff. But but if it's cool once, yeah, no, cool. but but the beauty with digital is just it goes quick. You do one. And then you do another one, and you do another, and another. There's an unlimited number of things you can actually learn. Exactly, and out of that unlimited amount of things, there will be a few who actually fulfill functions that people engage with every day that are fundamental for the coherence of a shared reality mod. Right. And people will use. It's the difference between the app you use on your phone and the one that you never do. Yeah, um, but I, I, I still wouldn't look at VR as as a, as, as the source of the AR stuff. Right. I agree with you there. I think ARs is, has more potential to it. All right. My, my dogs are ready to go out. Okay. All right. And uh, thanks. Back. This was a lot of fun. Boy, we were riffing at the end there. It was like, whoa, good stuff. <laughs> yeah. That's All right. right. Thank you very much. All right. Time. Thanks. It was fun. Uh, thank, thank you, guys. Thank you for your time and take, yeah, take care. Stay well. Time. Be well. Right. Take care, man. Bye-bye. All success. Yep. Bye. We hope you enjoyed the show. Consider becoming our patron and helping us put out more content like this. Patreon.com forward slash techno social.